Let us pray. Almighty God, you have given your only Son to be for us a sacrifice for sin and also an example of godly life. Give us grace to receive thankfully the fruits of his redeeming work and to follow daily in the blessed steps of his most holy life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Today we begin at Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 22, a story that I'm sure is familiar to all of you, but a story that nevertheless is fresh nearly every time we look at it. So chapter 14, verse 22, let's go ahead and read. And immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him and saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that he might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. We have, over the course of the past several weeks, been taking a look at the various reactions that people had uh, to Jesus' claim to be the king. Uh, We noted the reaction of the Jewish religious leaders, namely the scribes and the Pharisees, and of how they were openly hostile to Jesus and to what he was doing, what he was the feats that he was performing, as well as the claims that he was making for himself. We noted that the disciples were interested in Jesus, but they still had a long way to go. And we noticed that when it came to the crowds as a whole, they were, for the most part, noncommittal. They were not necessarily hostile to Jesus. They were just sort of lukewarm when it came to Jesus. They were impressed by his miracles, but not enough to make a commitment to him. All of that changes somewhat, at least in regard to the crowds, when we come here to this story that we have before us today, to this 14th chapter of Matthew. And it just helps us to understand how truly fickle the people of Jesus' day were. And not just the people of Jesus' day, but how fickle the human heart really is. Now, we can be excited about one thing one day and then sort of not interested in it the next. The occasion for this great event that we have described, this miracle of Jesus' rescue of the disciples by means of walking on the water, is precipitated by the event that we talked about last week, this great miracle that Jesus performed, the feeding of the 5,000. 
I mentioned last week that this was the only one of Jesus' miracles over the course of his three-year ministry that is recorded by all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It obviously made a deep impression on the crowds. And that's not really surprising when you consider the fact that these were a people living in a very agrarian culture. These were a people who lived off the land. And they lived a, a very fragile existence. You know, we need food, we just go to the back of the room here, or we go down to the grocery store and we buy everything that we could possibly need. That was not the case in the ancient world. Um, food was a very precious commodity, and in some respects, it was not something that was readily available. And uh, what's more, if you lived in that kind of a culture, any number of things could upset that fragility. Um, a drought could come upon the land and, and ruin your crops. Uh, they lived, of course, in a day before there were any kinds of things like you know, pesticides, and so uh, a horde of locusts could come and devour your crops. And if that was the case, whole communities could sometimes disappear overnight. So people in the first century lived this very fragile existence. And so when Jesus, there on that hillside, took five loaves of bread, two small fish, and multiplied them and fed 5,000 people. That made a deep impression. I think that's one of the reasons why all four of the Gospels record it. To those people, that was really more impressive. Not to us necessarily, but to those people, that was even more impressive and more important than Jesus raising somebody from the dead. Because what he was doing was he was providing for their physical needs. And oftentimes it's our physical needs that are the most pressing upon us, isn't it? Jesus always used an opportunity to heal somebody physically to be an opportunity to share the gospel with them, but it was often the case that before they could be healed spiritually, they had to be healed, his, healed physically so that they could actually receive the message. And sometimes that's true for our lives as well. But after Jesus had fed the 5,000, we're told that, verse 22, he immediately made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain himself to pray. Sometimes it's helpful when you recognize that there are parallel accounts in another gospel to read those. They sometimes throw light on the situation. And because this is recorded in all four of the gospels, it's helpful to see what the other gospel writers have to say. It helps us to understand what's really taking place behind the scenes. After Jesus had performed this miracle, we're told that he ordered the disciples to get into the boat. Actually, it's interesting. Matthew says he made them get into the boat. That is to say, they didn't have a choice in the matter. He made them get into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake. He dismissed the crowds, and he went up on the mountainside to pray. Now, why was it that Jesus wanted to be alone? Well, again, if you look at the other Gospels, they give us some insight into what is taking place in Jesus' mind at this point. First of all, we're told he wanted to go up and he wanted to pray. We know that Jesus spent a great deal of time in prayer. Prayer was a high priority in the Lord's life. And he, this was a very personal thing with Jesus. So he oftentimes spent time alone with the disciples. Those of you who have been coming on Wednesday night, we had been doing a series on John chapter 17. And John chapter 17 contains a prayer by Jesus, often referred to scholars as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. I call it the real Lord's Prayer. What we call the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, that's really not the Lord's Prayer. Jesus never actually prayed that prayer. 
It was an answer to a request by the disciples to teach them to pray. Jesus never said, forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. He didn't need to pray that. And what's interesting about John 17 and that high priestly prayer is that it is the only prayer of Jesus that we actually have recorded in Scripture. Now, he did pray at the time that he raised Lazarus from the dead, but this is the only lengthy prayer, let's put it that way, that we have in the Scriptures. Most of the time, Jesus went off by himself to pray, and the disciples never had the opportunity to see what he was praying for. It's only in John chapter 17 that Jesus pulls back the curtain, as it were, and allows them access to this personal time in prayer. So it's not surprising here in Matthew chapter 14 that Jesus is going up on the hillside and he wants to be alone. This was always for Jesus, with the exception of that occasion in John chapter 17, a very personal time. But as I said, when you look at the other Gospels, something else is seen here. In Mark's version of the story, for example, we're told that Jesus needed some rest. It's a reminder to us that while Jesus was fully divine, he was also fully human. And you may not believe it, but being around crowds of people can be draining. You know, there are some people that are what I call predatory extroverts. You know, those are the kind of people that seek you out and they can talk the pain off the wall and they are absolutely empowered as a result of being around other people. I am not one of them. I am a high-functioning introvert. That is to say that I can be around people, I enjoy other people's company, but when I'm done, I'm done. You, you can stick a fork in me because I am cooked at that point. I am done. How many of you are like that? There are a few of you. Of course you understand then. Praise the Lord. Well, Jesus loved being around the crowds, but it was draining. There was always somebody making some sort of demand on him for his time. There was always somebody who wanted something from him. And being fully human as well as fully divine, Jesus sometimes needed to escape the crowds. He needed rest. And so Mark tells us that he wanted to go and be alone. But there was something else going on here, and we see this in particular in John's version of the story. We're told that as a result of this great miracle in which Jesus feeds the 5,000, the people are so enthralled with what he had done that their attitude of sort of noncommittal attitude, all of that changes suddenly. And the people suddenly want to make Jesus their king. That is to say, they want to make him their Messiah. Now, you have to understand that in the first century, they knew Messiah was coming, but they had very specific ideas as to what the Messiah or the king was going to do when he arrived. And what he was going to do was primarily be some sort of political or military leader. Somebody who would lead the people in throwing out the Romans, these pagan polytheistic Romans, and reestablishing, if you will, the ancient Davidic dynasty. That's, that's what they were looking for. And so when they saw Jesus perform this great feat where he could supply these people with everything that they could possibly need, they said, that's the king. We want to make you the king. Now, if you think about it, this is really a temptation for Jesus. We face something very similar to this, or at least Jesus had faced something very similar to this earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. 
Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 14. Turn back 10 chapters to Matthew chapter 4, and you'll see exactly what I mean. This is after Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. We're told that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where what happened? He was tempted by the devil. And after first fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the devil came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. You know, it's good to be the king, isn't it? It's good to be in charge. It's good to have others at your beck and call. That was a temptation for Jesus. Now, he overcame that temptation, but just because Jesus was tempted on that one occasion, that does not mean that the devil gives up. He just becomes more subtle, not as obvious in his attacks. And I think that's what we have happening here in Matthew chapter 14. These people wanted to make Jesus a king. And he had come to be the king. That's what the whole gospel of Matthew is really all about. It's about the kingship of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God which has come to earth. But it wasn't that kind of a kingdom. If you want to hear more about this, come on the last Sunday of Pentecost. Because that's Christ the King Sunday. And I'm going to be preaching on this whole thing. But that's what they wanted to make Jesus a king. And he wanted to be a king, but he was not going to be a king on the devil's terms. And so John indicates that Jesus needed this time of rest, he needed some time with the Father, and he needed some time to go up there and deal with these temptations and get reoriented in terms of the rest of his ministry. So that's what happens. Jesus dismisses the crowds, he makes the disciples get into the boat, and he goes up on the mountain to pray. And that sets the stage for this great event that we have before us this afternoon, Matthew chapter 14. We're told that as the disciples got into the boat, they traveled to the other side. When evening came, Jesus was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. The Sea of Galilee, for those of you who have been there, and I know a number of you have, is not a large body of water. It's the largest body of water in Israel, but compared to our lakes, the Great Lakes and so forth, it is not a large body of water. And normally it is not difficult to travel across from one side of the sea to the other. However, the Sea of Galilee then and now is subject to storms, some of which can be very violent. Many times they erupt unexpectedly. Part of that is simply due to the geography of the area. You have Mount Hermon to the north, which is a very high area. The Sea of Galilee itself is located several hundred feet below sea level. So it's below sea level. But just to the north, you have this large mountain, Mount Hermon, that sometimes even in the summer has snow on the top. I've been there in the spring, and I've actually gone up there, and there is snow up there. When down below at the Sea of Galilee, it could be 90 degrees. So you've got this uh, Mount Hermon to the north, you've got the Gulan Heights to the east, and you've got the mountains of Tiberias to the west. 
And what often happens is that the cool, dry area from those cool, dry air from those high regions, those high mountains, comes down and it mixes with that moist subtropical air rising from the water surface, and the results are explosive. Storms come up suddenly, unexpectedly. Some years ago, one of these storms sent waves over 10 feet high crashing into the village of Tiberias. For those of you who went to the Holy Land with me, when we stayed on the Sea of Galilee, that's where we stayed, near Tiberias. So waves over 10 feet high crashing into that community and doing extensive damage. So that's what the Sea of Galilee was like. And remember that these men are in a small craft. It's man-powered, and it's in the night. And so they find themselves in a very desperate place. Jesus, meanwhile, is where? He's up on the mountainside. He's praying. But because he's on that mountainside, he can see what's going on. Apparently, these men have been rowing all night long. When Jesus dismissed the crowds, he dismissed the crowds because the sun was setting. And we're told that when he finally came to their rescue, it was the fourth watch of the night. The Jews normally divided the night into three watches. But by this point, everybody was operating under Roman rules and regulations, and the Romans divided the night into four watches. So this is the fourth and last watch of the night. It's sometime between 3 o'clock and 6 a.m. So it's dark, the wind is howling, the waves are crashing, the wind is spitting, all this rain. It's a very difficult and terrifying situation, and the disciples are absolutely scared to death. They are terrified. You have to remember that the Jews, the Hebrews, were not a seafaring people to begin with. They were land lovers. They were pretty much a people who didn't do anything with the sea. There are very few stories in the Bible that have anything to do with the sea. One possible exception is the story of Jonah. But these were not a seafaring people. In fact, in the Old Testament, anytime there's a reference to the sea raging and so forth, it's always a symbol of chaos and it's always a symbol of danger. It's one of the reasons why when you get to the book of Revelation, we're told that when the kingdom of God comes in all of its glory, the sea shall be no more. Now, for those of us who live along the coast, we don't like that because we love the sea. But for the Jews, it's symbolic of the fact that suffering and pain, a source of misery and fear, is going to be no more. The sea shall be no more. That's the hope that they have. So the disciples were absolutely terrified. This is not something, even though they are people who are fishermen and they're accustomed to being on the lake, they don't like the water. The water is something that provides for them, but it's not something that they necessarily love. So they're in a dangerous place. They're terrified. And we're told that Jesus, seeing them in the midst of their trouble, comes to their rescue. That's the first thing to note, that Jesus notes their trouble. Even though he's up there with the Father, even though he's occupied with his own concerns, he is never too concerned for his own problems or his own issues or his own temptations not to be concerned for the disciples. He sees them in peril and he comes to their rescue walking on the water. And what's their response? Well, it's interesting. It says that Jesus came to them walking on the water. And they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. Other translations, other versions of the story said that it looked as though Jesus was going to pass them by. And when they saw him coming there in the midst of the darkness and the wind and the storm, and they see this ghostly apparition coming on the surface of the 
water. They think it is a spirit, a demon, a ghost, or something like that. And in that first century environment, if you saw a ghost, it was normally a bad omen. If you saw a ghost, that was normally a harbinger of your own death. So no wonder the disciples are absolutely terrified when you put all of this together. But verse 27 says, Immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now something is lost in the English translation here. It's understandable as to why the translators... Um, do it the way they do in verse 27, but this is not actually what Jesus says. When Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart to desire, literally what he said in the Greek was, take heart, I am. Now that doesn't make much sense to English readers, and so it's translated, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. But if you remember your Old Testament history, you know that what Jesus was really speaking was not simply a word of comfort to the disciples. He was declaring himself to be what? God. That's exactly right. You remember that when Moses encountered God in the burning bush way back in the book of Exodus, and the Lord spoke to him out of that bush and said, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh and you are going to be the deliverer of my people. You're going to deliver them from their bondage. I've seen their, their, their slavery and I've come to rescue them. And Moses says to God, well, what am I supposed to say to these people? They're going to want to know what your name is. What, what, what's your name? And God says, I am who I am. The most that you and I can ever say is, I am what I am by the grace of God. God simply says, I am. Did you ever notice how the book, uh, the book of Genesis begins, the first verse of the Bible? In the beginning, God. It's interesting, isn't it? It doesn't begin with any philosophical arguments for the existence of God. It begins with the fact of God exis God's existence. Simple as that. Well, that is what that great name, the Tetragrammaton, meant. It was a name that was not to be spoken by the Jews. And here is Jesus speaking it. He is saying, take heart, I am. Take heart, don't be afraid. It's not a ghost. It's God in your midst. Now that was an extraordinary claim on the part of Jesus. And there's something else here. Keep your finger there in Matthew and go back to the book of Job. To Job chapter 9. Now, you know the story of Job. Job is caught in this great cosmic conflict between God and Satan, and all these terrible things happen to him. And he begins to doubt whether God is really on his side, and God replies to him. And one of the things that God says is he says he is the one who has made the world. Look at Job chapter 9, beginning at verse 5, God is described as He who removes mountains and they know it not, who shakes the earth out of its place, who commands the sun, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion and Pleiades and the chambers of the south. See that phrase? It is he who stretches out the heavens and walks and tramples upon the waves of the sea. 
See, in Job, the one who stretches out the heaven and walks on the sea is God. So when they say it's a ghost, Jesus is walking on the sea and he cries out, I am. Jesus, in no uncertain term, is making a claim to be one with the Father. Now that's a bold claim. The question is, can he back it up? Well, when Peter recognizes that it is Jesus, he replies, Lord, let me come to you. And Jesus says what? He says, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. It is a rare thing that I will ever disagree with Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who is perhaps one of the greatest preachers in all of history, but on this occasion I'm going to do it. If you read Charles Haddon Spurgeon's description of this particular account, he is very critical of Peter. He said, what in the world did Peter want with walking on the water? He said, this, this is a, just a perfect example of Peter, Peter's impetuous behavior. You know, Peter was always the kind of person who would say something and then regret it afterward. I always say that Peter is the kind of guy that always passes the test but somehow flunks the course. He's just that kind of person. He's always afflicted with foot-and-mouth disease. You know, up there on the mountains, he sees God shining in resplendent glory, Jesus and the prophets and Elijah and Moses. And he's, he's very impressed by all of that. And we're told that he wanted to do what? He wanted to make three boos for them. And the scripture says because he didn't know what he was saying. It, it was Peter who said to Jesus, everyone else is going to desert you, but it won't be me. I'll be loyal to you no matter what. And of course, he denied the Lord three times, one time to a little girl. On another occasion, Jesus said, did you catch anything? Peter says, no, I didn't catch anything. Jesus said, well, go back out and throw your nets on the other side of the lake. And Peter says, now listen, I'm a fisherman, you're a carpenter. You stick with your business, I'll stick with mine. And Jesus says, I'm telling you what to do. All right, just to prove you wrong, I'm going to go out and do it. And Peter goes out, throws the net on the other side of the fish, on the other side of the boat, and the fish are so great that his nets begin to tear. That's Peter, isn't it? And even after the resurrection, I'd like to think that Peter got it right after the resurrection, but even then he didn't get it right. Remember the occasion where they were up there on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus appears on the seashore just before he restores Peter? And, and he, he cries out. They can't really tell who he is. They cry out, have you caught anything? Same words that he'd used three years earlier when he called them. No, we haven't caught anything. Throw your nets on the other side of the lake. A light bulb goes on for John. He goes, it's the Lord. He remembers those words. Ah, yes, it's, it's what Jesus said three years ago. And we're told that Peter put on his clothes and dived into the water. Now, when most people dive into the water, they take off their clothes. But not Peter. Without even thinking, what does he do? He's stripped down, he gets dressed, and he dives into the water. That, that, that's Peter. He acts before thinking. And, and Spurgeon said, here's another example of Peter doing just that. He said, you would have thought that given his name, he would have recognized what a mistake that was. The word Peter comes from Petros. It means rock. Rocks sink to the bottom. Spurgeon said, you would have thought that he would have recognized that. But I think that's being a little hard on Peter. I don't think Peter was being impetuous here. And, and I think the reason we know that that's not the case is because Jesus does reprimand him just a few verses later, but he doesn't reprimand Peter for his impetuosity. He reprimands Peter for what? His lack of faith. And it's really not even a lack of faith. Peter has faith. It's his little 
faith. Little doesn't mean small amount. It means small in stature, small in size. It's not about amount. It's about the degree of faith. That's what he criticizes him for. Look again at the text. But Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, your faith is small. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This helps us to understand the nature of true biblical faith. I pointed out to you before that true biblical faith is more than simply believing in something. It's believing on something. There are three Latin words that can be used to describe what true biblical faith is. And those three Latin words are these. Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Notitia means knowledge. It means knowledge of the content of the faith. You understand, in order to believe in something, you have to understand what it's really all about. In order to believe in Christianity, you have to understand what Christianity is all about. That's why we say the creed every Sunday. We profess our faith in a number of things. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. I believe in God, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. That's the knowledge of the faith. That's the content of the faith. In order to be a Christian, you have to understand that. doesn't mean you understand it fully, but you have to understand that this is what it means to be a Christian. In order to say to be a Christian, you have to at least, at the bare minimum, believe the creed. That's what the church has said since the year 325. In order to be a Christian, at the bare minimum, you have to subscribe to these things. And if you can't subscribe to those, well, you're not a Christian. So that's the head knowledge. You understand the content of the faith. But there's a second element. It's not simply understanding the content of the faith. You have to agree to it. That's what the word ascensus means. It means agreement with. So it's not only that you understand that, yes, this is what Christians believe, but what's more, you agree with it. You believe in God the Father the Almighty. You agree that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God. You agree that the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life. You agree with all of those Things. That's the second element of faith. But it's not enough to have a head knowledge and even agree intellectually that these things are true. There is a third element to faith. And that's the word fiducia from which we get the word fidelity. It means you trust. I've sometimes said it's like jumping out of an airplane. You put on that... Uh, Parachute, you jump out of the airplane. Now, you understand what a parachute is designed to do, right? And, and you may even agree that the parachute is capable of saving you. But before you jump out of an airplane and go hurtling between the ground and with nothing between you and certain death but that little bit of nylon on your back, you've got to do more than just have a head knowledge or an agreement that that parachute theoretically can save your life. You have to place your trust in that parachute, don't you? True Christian faith involves all three of those elements. 
And the reason I say that Spurgeon is a little hard on Peter is because if you look at Peter in this story, Peter possesses all three of those. He understands that it's Jesus. He understands that Jesus is coming to him, a worker of great miracles walking on the water, and he trusts Jesus. Otherwise, he would never have gotten out of the boat. The problem for Peter is not a lack of faith. The problem for Peter was the lack of a strong, robust faith. You don't need a lot of faith, my friends, to be saved. And the reason I say Peter did have faith in Jesus is because even as he's sinking beneath the waves, who does he cry out to? He doesn't say, James, throw me a line. Hey, John, help me out here. He says, Lord, save me. He knew that in that moment of crisis, there was only one who was capable of saving him. And he placed his whole confidence, his whole trust in Jesus, and we're told that Jesus took him by the hand, pulled him into the boat, and he was saved. So he has the faith. The problem is this. He had enough faith to be saved. He didn't have enough faith to rise above the waves and walk on the water with Jesus. Listen, that's what God wants for us. God doesn't want us to just escape through this life as those escaping through the flames. What God wants is for us to rise above. He wants us, as Paul says, to be more than conquerors. Not just conquerors, not just survivors. What God wants is for us to be more than conquerors. He wants us to have the kind of faith that is strong enough to rise above life's storms. Now, why was Peter's faith small? Well, there are a number of reasons for it. One was that he had taken his eyes off of Jesus. If you're going to have a strong faith, the one thing you must never do is take your eyes off of Christ. Peter's problem was that initially he kept his eyes fixed on Christ, and as long as his eyes were fixed on Christ, he did just well. He did just fine. But the minute that he took his eyes off Christ and began to look at the circumstances around him, the wind and the waves, that's when he began to lose heart and that's when he began to sink. Listen, it's always that way in the storms of life. As long as you keep your eyes fixed on the one who can walk upon the water, who stretches out the heaven and treads upon the sea, you are fine. It's normally when we look at the crisis around us, isn't it? It's normally when we look at the circumstances that we begin to lose heart and we begin to sink. So how is it that Jesus strengthens our faith? I want to suggest to you that one way that God strengthens our faith is that he sometimes sends us into the storm. We don't like to think of it that way. And I've always said we're in one of three places. You're either in a storm, you've just come out of a storm, or you're heading into a storm. Sometimes it is God, I think, who sends us into those storms. Because up to that point, we may believe in God. It's an academic exercise, but we're really not trusting in God. You know, when everything's going your way, you can believe in God. You don't have to trust in God. You can trust in yourself. But when the doctor comes and he gives you the bad news, or the stock market crashes, or whatever it may be, you suddenly realize you can't trust in yourself anymore. 
When a friend deserts you or betrays you, you realize you can't trust your friends. You can't trust your own family. There's only one that you can trust, and that is God. And so sometimes he sends us into a storm. That's what happened with the disciples. Jesus made them get into the boat. Why? Because they had a faith, but it was a faith that was small. And it was a faith that needed to grow. It's like lifting weights, folks. The only way you build muscle is by working out. And that's what God was going to do with these disciples. He was going to send them into the storm in order to strengthen their faith. We have a great hymn that speaks of this. It's one of my favorite hymns. How firm a foundation. And I just want you to listen to some of these stanzas. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can He say than to you He hath said, to you that for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with thee. O be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I am, that's what Jesus said, and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee and help thee and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. Stanza three is particularly good. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not thee overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. The word sanctify means to make holy. What am I going to do with your deepest distress? I'm going to use it as the means to make you holy. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. That's what Jesus was doing with Peter and the others. Now you say, well, that's a hard way to learn. And it is a hard way to learn. But you know, what's interesting is that even though Jesus was sending them into the storm, He had not left them bereft of the assurance that He would be there for them. Now, this is not actually in the story. This is a little bit of sanctified speculation. But I, I think it's interesting to note, if you go back and you look at the story that immediately precedes this one, the feeding of the 5,000, I want you to notice how it ends. Verse 20. And they all, eat and were, all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Now, nobody's going to waste that kind of food. You know, leftovers. Leftovers sometimes taste better the second time around. Well, one commentator has suggested that when they picked up those baskets full, they probably distributed among the crowds, but the disciples would have kept some for themselves. So as they're crossing over the Sea of Galilee to the other side and this storm erupts and they're faced with a crisis and their little faith begins to shrink, what happens? Well, if they had been smart, they would have recognized that beneath their very nose was the proof of God's provision. That there was no crisis that was so desperate that God was not able to rise above it. That he who could take five Loaves of bread and two small fish. Do you remember what Jesus had said to Philip on that occasion? He said, where are we going to get food for all these people? 
And Philip started adding up on his fingers and he said, well, there's no way. A year's supply of money would never be able to feed all of these people. And Jesus said, you give them something to eat. And he realized he couldn't do it. And Jesus says, well then, bring it to me. And in the Lord's hands, that little becomes a sufficient and overflowing amount. So the proof of God's provision was right there in the boat with them. But it's an important lesson for us. What God wants us to be is more than conquerors. And in order to strengthen our faith, He will from time to time, get ready for it, lead us into a storm. But the whole point of which is to sanctify to us our deepest distress. Now, you might think that that is the climax of this story, but it's not. The climax of this story is not Jesus' rescue of Peter. The climax of this story is what happens as a result. The climax of this story is what we read about in verse 33. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. When the disciples realize that it's Jesus, when they realize what Jesus has done, their reaction is twofold. They do two things. First of all, they confess Jesus. They confess him as the Christ. And not just the Christ, but the Son of the living God. You know they had been with Jesus on another occasion when they had been trapped in a great storm at sea. You remember that? Jesus had been asleep in the stern of the boat. It's earlier in this same gospel. Remember that occasion? And they're bailing furiously. The boat's in danger of sinking. And they go and they rouse Jesus and they say, Do you not care that we are perishing? In other words, grab a bucket. And what does Jesus do? We're told that he goes to the prow of the boat and he looks out over the sea and he says, stop it. He rebukes the wind and the waves. You know, if you think Jesus is up there simply saying, peace, be still. I mean, that is not the idea. He rebuked the wind and the waves. It's as though they had interrupted him in the midst of a nap. And he goes up there and he says, stop it, peace, be still. And immediately the wind and the seas calm down. And we're told that the disciples on that occasion were amazed. They said to themselves, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Now on that first occasion, what was their reaction? Their reaction is awe, but it's followed by a question. Who is this? They were already following him, but they really weren't sure who he was. But by the time you get to this point, they have grown in their faith enough that they're no longer questioning, who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? They now recognize exactly who he is. What do they do? They say, surely you are the Son of God. That's the first thing they do. They confess him. And then what do they do? They worship him. Worship, the word worship comes from the Old English, worthship. It means to apply worth or value to someone or to something. In the Bible, it is something that is only reserved for God alone. So as a result of their experience, as a result of coming through this storm, they confess Jesus as the Son of God. Interestingly enough, this is the first time that they do it in the gospel. And for the first time in this gospel, 
they actually fall down and worship Jesus as God. Now, I say that's interesting because other people up to this point have already worshipped Jesus. Way back at the beginning of this study, we looked at the Magi, the wise men who came from the east to seek the baby who had been born king of the Jews, and were told that they opened their gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and they worshipped him. We're told that others, foreigners, had worshipped Jesus. A leper had knelt before Jesus in Matthew chapter 8. To kneel before a person was to worship them. The same thing was true of the synagogue ruler who knelt before Jesus. But isn't it interesting that the disciples had been with him all this time and it's not until now that they begin to catch just a glimpse perhaps of who he is. They're not there yet. They're not all the way there. Because it's going to be another two chapters before Peter makes his great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But they're beginning to see. They're beginning to understand. My question to you today is, you, you may not understand everything about Jesus. But have you been with Him enough? Have you been through enough storms? Have he, has He sustained you enough for you to begin to at least grasp who He is? Have you come to the point where you're at least willing to acknowledge Him as the Christ, the Son of the living God? Are you willing to place your trust in Him? That doesn't mean that you've arrived. It doesn't mean that your faith is as robust as it needs to be. But it doesn't mean that you have actually made progress in this thing called the Christian life. It's a continuous growth, my friends. But you do have to ask that question. It is an important question for all of us to ask. Peter and the others were not there yet, but they were at least well on their way. Well, it would be nice if the story ends there, but it doesn't. As I've said to you before, no good deed goes unpunished. And that's what we see happening here in Matthew chapter 15. So let's go ahead and read through the next 20 verses. And see, while the people are becoming interested in Jesus again and the disciples are growing in their faith, we still haven't answered what is this the case with the, with the Pharisees. Uh, they had been adamantly opposed to Jesus. Have they warmed to the Lord and to His message and to the things that He was doing? Chapter 15, verse 1, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles him. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered them, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, 
Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. What's happening here in Matthew chapter 15? Well, we've already seen that Jesus is growing in popularity again. The crowds are fascinated by his ability to feed them to such a degree that they are prepared to make him a king. Now, what that did is it made the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, very nervous. They didn't like the fact that when Jesus spoke, people listened to him. I've said to you before, the Pharisees and the scribes, the Jewish religious leaders, were extremely jealous of Jesus. That was their main complaint against him. He had not been to any of their rabbinical academies. He had not been formally licensed to preach. And yet when Jesus spoke, people listened to him. When the Pharisees spoke, they had a derived authority. When Jesus spoke, he said, you have heard that it was said, such and such, but I say unto you. Jesus had an authority of his own and the Pharisees and the scribes hated it. But the problem was, Jesus now was very popular with the crowds. So what were they going to do about that? Well, they go to Jesus with the intention of somehow tripping him up, of somehow discrediting him in the eyes of the people. This is what they have been doing all along, and they never give up. So they come to him, and they ask why his disciples of the elders, why they do not wash their hands when they eat. I want you to know that Jesus' reaction to the Pharisees on this occasion goes to show us just how radical Jesus really was in the first century world. I think part of the problem for us in Western Christianity, well, it's twofold. One is that you and I have been inoculated with this weak form of Christianity and we become resistant to the real thing. And the other thing is this, we have a domesticated understanding of Jesus. Jesus is, is, is someone that is non-threatening to us and to our lives. But I want you to understand that when Jesus spoke in the first century world, everybody, the disciples, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, everybody recognized that what Jesus was saying was radical. And you never really understand who Jesus is unless you realize that he is making a radical claim upon your life. Now, what does it mean to say that Jesus is the king? It means that he's sovereign, folks. It means that he is sovereign over everything. You know, kings don't run for re-election. They rule absolutely, and that's what Jesus was claiming, absolute authority over the lives of people, and the disciples didn't understand it fully, but they were getting there. The people were sort of ambivalent about it, but the Jewish religious leaders understood very well what it meant, and they hated him for it. And so they come and they ask the question, why, why do your disciples eat without washing their hands. Now, listen, this has nothing to do with cleanliness. This is simply part of the Pharisaical tradition. 
In fact, they had all kinds of ceremonial laws. And just for you to understand, there is what is known as the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah in the Jewish tradition is basically a commentary on the Jewish law. You have the Ten Commandments and the other laws in Leviticus and so forth. And then there's this whole oral tradition, which is an expansion upon that. And within that expansion, that commentary, multi-volume commentary on the law, there is a whole section on just ceremonial washing. So for the Pharisees, this was very important stuff. Ceremonial washing, making sure that you do all of the things, all of the things that were symbolizing this purity of heart. And so it was very, very important to them. And so they come to Jesus and they said to him, why is it that your disciples don't do the ceremonial washing before they eat? What they're basically saying is, you're not very religious. And what I want you to notice, and this is where the radical part comes in, what I want you to notice is how Jesus responds to that. Now, if Jesus were meek and mild, the way that most of us imagine Jesus to be, what would we expect him to do? We would expect him to react in a very kind, compassionate, merciful way. We would expect that Jesus to try and excuse his disciples and say, well, you know, you fellows are right, but the truth be known, these guys don't know any better. They're just fishermen from up there in Galilee. Or we would have expected him to say, well, the truth be known, they didn't have time. Everybody was so hungry, and they'd been through a terrible storm, and this, that, and the other thing, so, you know, just, just cut them a break. But yes, I understand. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't excuse the disciples. Here's something else he doesn't do. He doesn't engage them in polite debate. He doesn't say, well, now, fellas, I understand your perspective, but let's, let's talk about this for a minute. There's another way of looking at this. What does Jesus do when they come to him with this accusation? Jesus attacks them. That, that, that's what Jesus, meek and mild, that's what the domesticated Christ does. He attacks them. And what an attack it is. Now, having explained that, let's just read those verses one more time. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Verse 7. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, The people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And what happens at this point? I can tell you exactly what happens at this point. The Pharisees are really angry, and the disciples come up to them and say, Okay, now, Lord, settle down. Settle down, back off. Don't you understand? You're making them angry. You're offending them. That's the one thing we don't expect Jesus to do, is it? We expect him to do many things. We don't expect Jesus to offend us. But if you actually listen to what Jesus claims, they are offensive to us. doesn't mean that they're not true, but they are offensive to us. To claim to be the king means to be sovereign over everything. Again, come on the last Sunday in Pentecost and hear all about it. But the claims that Jesus makes on our lives to be Lord of all is offensive to us. Because we want to believe that we're the masters of our own fate. Nobody tells me what to do. 
My little boy will sometimes say to his big sister when she tells him to do something, he'll turn to her and he'll say, you are not the boss of me. <laughs> and that's how we feel, isn't it? Nobody's going to tell me what to do. How did Frank Sinatra put it? I did it my way. And that's how we want to live our lives. We want to live it my way. And Jesus says, no, it's my way. And that's what he was saying to the Pharisees. And he goes so far as to call them hypocrites. Now that is absolutely shocking. He asked the question, what was it that Jesus said to these men that so offended them? Well, there were a number of things. First of all, Jesus said that they were worshiping God, but their hearts were not in it. It's no mistake that this story follows upon the one in which the disciples fall down before Jesus, confess Him for who He really is, and worship Him. Well, this whole business of washing hands was also an aspect of worship. But Jesus says the difference between what the disciples did and what the Pharisees were doing is that one was genuine and legitimate. It was a worship of the heart. The other was simply an outward show. That's what Jesus was saying to them. We have a similar story in John chapter 4 when Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well and he goes to her and he asks her for a drink. Do you remember the story? And she said, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For Jews and Samaritans have nothing to do with each other. Our ancestors worship here on Mount Gerizim, but you Jews say the only place to worship is in Jerusalem. And do you remember what Jesus said in response to that? He said, woman, I tell you the truth, the time is coming when men will not worship here or there. For what God seeks is those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's Jesus' way of saying it's not a matter of outward show. It's a matter of the inward things. It's a matter of the heart. God is not interested in what you do outwardly if your heart is not in it. That's why Jesus called them hypocrites. That's why on another occasion he called them whited sepulchers, whitewashed tombs. He said they're so polished and impressive on the outside. Go sometime up to Magnolia Cemetery and just drive through. You will see some of the most impressive monuments in the world. They are magnificent. There are, there are big tombs up there that look like pyramids from Egypt. It's amazing. But you know what they're filled with? Dead men's bones. <laughs> and dead women's bones as well. But whatever it is, however impressive it may appear, what's inside is dead. And Jesus was saying that was the problem for the Pharisees. Listen, that is a shocking thing to say to people. But it was a necessary thing. He was saying that their problem was that they were hypocritical. And he's very specific. Look at verse 4. He said, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? The disciples were being accused of breaking the tradition. He says, but you break the commandments of God. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have had gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. What is happening there? Well, Jesus was attacking one of the things that the Pharisees said was allowable, but it was one of the most disgraceful practices 
and first century Judaism. The fifth commandment says we are to honor your father and mother. And just a chapter later in that same book of Exodus, it says that anybody who curses his father or mother will be cursed by God. So to honor your father and mother, that, that was a very important thing. And that meant that if your father and mother fell on hard times, you had a responsibility to care for your parents. That's important for us to remember in this culture, when oftentimes we regard older people as not being as important, and they are oftentimes discarded. But the Bible is very clear. We are to honor our father and mother not only when they deserve it. We are to honor our father and our mother the whole way to the end of their life. That doesn't necessarily mean that we have to do everything that they say to do when we become adults. But it does mean that we are to honor them to the end of their lives. But the Pharisee said that if your parents come to you and they need help, financial assistance, you are excused from helping them if you say the word Corbin. And what that meant was that the money that you would have set aside to help your parents, you have dedicated to God. So I can't help you, Mom and Dad, because the money that I would have been giving to you, I've decided to give that money to God. And here's the worst part. You didn't necessarily have to give it to God. All you had to say was that you would give it to God. And you were excused. Well, that's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. He said, here you are, so concerned with going through the motions, making sure your hands are cleaned, and what are you doing? You're breaking the commandments, the more important commandments, to honor your father and mother. That's why Jesus said you're hypocrites. It's not what goes on on the outside, it's what goes on on the inside. I've often said there are going to be a number of surprises when we get to heaven. The first surprise is going to be, who's there? The second surprise is going to be, who's not there? And the third surprise is going to be, you're there. <laughs> because there are lots of people, we look at them on the outward, they seem to be doing all the right things, saying all the right things, member of all the right societies and so forth, but their hearts are far from God. And then there are these other people that we really don't know, sort of on the fringe, but their hearts are warm to God and they are worshiping Him in spirit and in truth and their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. How about you? Have you come to the realization that Jesus is who He claims to be? I am. The disciples begin to realize He really is. And the result is what? They confessed Him as Lord and they fell and they worshiped Him. And they worshiped Him in spirit and in truth? Or are you simply saying the words, going through the motions, singing the hymns, saying the prayers, but it hasn't made any difference whatsoever in the way you live your life? That's what Jesus is getting at with the Pharisees. And any way you look at it, my friends, that is radical. As C.S. Lewis put it, is Aslan a good lion? Oh, yes. But he is not safe. Jesus is infinitely good, but my friends, he is not safe.
He's going to make a radical claim on your life. He doesn't want a little part of it. He wants all of it. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this teaching of Jesus. We thank you that he rescued Peter and we thank you that he put them through the storm that their faith might grow and that in Jesus they saw the one who really is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the ancient of days and they fell and they worshipped him. They worshipped him in their hearts, not just outwardly. Grant us whatever it takes, Lord, whatever storms are necessary, that we might worship you truly, that we might recognize who you are and give everything that we have to you and to your service. For whoever loses his life in this life will ever surely find it. Grant this for our sake and for Christ's glory. Amen.